We've come together this afternoon to hear the thoughts of a, a fascinating writer and thinker, Evgeny Morozov. He's a Belarusian writer and researcher whose commentary on technology has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, The Economist and New Scientist. He's the author of The Net Delusion, The Dark Side of Internet Freedom, and most recently, To Save Everything, Click Here, The Folly of Technological Solutionism. Would you please join with me in welcoming Evgeny Morozov. Um, hi everyone, uh, it's a pleasure to be here and it's probably the nicest room that I'll ever talk to. Um, uh, it will be very hard to beat. So um, I was invited to talk uh, about the dark side of the internet and uh, if you've opened the newspapers in the last few weeks, I think uh, it doesn't really look like a very dangerous idea in that I think everyone now uh, suspects that something dangerous is going on with uh, their smartphones, their Facebooks, um, their social networking profiles. So I think um, it's actually not a very dangerous idea. It's a much more useful, I think, would be to talk about the very idea of the internet and how uh, it affects our thinking and how it affects our narrative and how it makes us miss certain political, economic, and social problems that are facing us and how we might be missing some of those problems as we frame our debates as being debates about technology or the digital or the internet or social media. Those of you who know my work know that um, I have uh, come to actually place the very term, the internet, in uh, scare quotes whenever I use it. So actually I refuse to speak of the internet uh, and uh, I have come to refuse to speak of its dark side. Uh, which doesn't mean that uh, bad things aren't happening, it just means that there is no unifying logic that ties all of them together and that they're all bad and ugly in its own way. Um, so let me uh, start from sort of the utopian angle of things. Uh, I come from Belarus, as you might have noticed from my accent or from the um, introduction, and if you know anything about Belarus, uh, you probably know that it's not the most uh, liberal and democratic society in Europe. Um, it has been ruled by the same uh, dictators for almost 20 years now, and uh, that's a place where I grew up, and from the uh, very early years, I've been um, frustrated with the lack of democratic change uh, in the country. So when about 10 years ago, everyone began talking about social media, text messages, blogs, uh, wikis, and podcasts, and uh, all those things, I was one of the uh, many people who thought that those tools uh, would be able to promote democratization in a country like Belarus. So I actually spent uh, the first several years of my career uh, being an activist, traveling not just through Belarus, but traveling through the former Soviet Union, and working with a lot of uh, people in the opposition, a lot of uh, journalists, a lot of people in NGOs who were also very interested in using uh, digital media and digital tools and social media and what I would now call the internet for uh, democratic change. And uh, I was working with a lot of 
funders from uh, America, Europe, um, who were as excited about the potential of these technologies as I was. Uh, what I've noticed in the three years that I've been doing that work is that uh, we were actually very naive uh, about what these tools can deliver and the ways in which those tools can actually be exploited uh, by uh, the governments who we thought we might be undermining with digital media. What I noticed in three years is that the same tools that are being used by activists are also used by governments for propaganda purposes. They are hiring and training and paying bloggers to go online and spread their own talking points. Uh, they're engaging in surveillance, often by buying technologies from um, Silicon Valley companies and then deploying them at home. Uh, they are engaging in new sorts of uh, cyber attacks, again, to crack down on freedom of expression. Basically, what I saw was that we in the West uh, were very naive about the power of these technologies. And we were naive not because we have overestimated what technology could deliver, but we partly didn't notice that all of these technologies and all of these tools uh, were operated in part by uh, private companies, by Silicon Valley, who have their own particular political and economic agendas. Very often those agendas diverge from those of activists. And moreover, uh, many of the tools for surveillance, for example, that we saw being used in places like the Middle East or Central Asia or places like Belarus, where I come from, uh, many of those surveillance tools were actually built because Western governments needed those tools to monitor their own populations, so to engage in monitoring of crime and terror. Right? So there was something at the geopolitical level and at the business level that greatly limited the utility of using such technologies for pushing for democratic change. Um, and uh, it doesn't mean that these technologies could not be used for greater good if they were designed differently, if they had privacy protection built into them by default, if many of these technology platforms did not um, uh, choose to remove critical blog posts written by, say, Chinese dissidents because they had interest in China. Right? All of the limitations that are so imposed on these platforms and technologies did not stem from something inherently bad about technology or social media. They stem from the very specific, concrete political and business and economic situation that we found ourselves in. Um, so that got me thinking about ways in which... Uh, the way in which we talk about technology and the way in which we talk about the internet actually prevents us from realizing its full liberating potential. And I started focusing much more on what I would call the mechanics of our debate about deliberating and uh, enslaving, if you will, potential of uh, digital media and how the very idea of the internet results in us framing these debates in one way or another. And what I noticed is that we tend to lump more and more um, all of the digital technologies that are now uh, being actively used by people everywhere, we tend to lump them into this one big idea. And we tend to think that somehow uh, uh, search engines and social networks and facial recognition technology and peer-to-peer -peer file sharing technology and uh, you know, Google Glass and uh, self-driving cars 
all of them are somehow stemming from this great new thing called the internet, and that if we only start manipulating and changing how each one of those technologies works, then we might actually be putting the internet itself at great risk, and we might be harming it, and we might be preventing it from accomplishing its full potential. And I think that much in this logic and in this rhetoric is bunk and that we actually need to find a way to talk about these individual technologies and the political, economic, and social logics that each of them promotes without collapsing them into this uh, very convenient narrative where we see a technology after technology come on stage and deliver great benefits to society. Um, what we see, on the other hand, is very different. We see new social movements that, uh, instead of fighting for more democracy or fighting for more human rights or freedom of expression, are beginning to promote ideas like Internet freedom, right? which to me sounds like a very ambiguous term that is very hard to define. And as an agenda that a social movement might want to embrace, that sounds um, very ambiguous. But... Yet, if you look, for example, at the pirate parties, if you look at some of the social movements like you know, the anonymous movement, that some of the supporters you see fighting behind Wikileaks, you'll see that many of them think that there is this genuinely new social goal, social objective, uniting their actions, and that objective is to preserve internet freedom. So we comically arrive at a point where you might open some technology media and some blogs covering technology and even some newspapers and see headlines like, um, regulation of 3D printing is going to harm internet freedom. Right? And to me, uh, arguments like this make very little sense, in part because the reason why we want to regulate 3D printers probably has to do with the fact that people now can print out guns on them, and it has nothing to do with the fact that those 3D printers might be connected to the Internet or some other network. Right? We need to find a way in which we can talk about the uses and misuses of these particular technologies without sort of thinking about how it will affect the internet. And instead, what we get in the public debate are constant arguments, which I would argue actually promoted and advanced by technology companies in Silicon Valley, when every time someone stands up and says that, well, we need to regulate how social networking works, or we need to regulate how uh, Google works, or we need to regulate 3D printing, someone from Silicon Valley stands up and says that, well, this is going to break the internet, right? This is going to, uh, this goes against the grain of the internet. Or they will say that uh, our laws are incompatible with the Internet, so we need to upgrade our laws. Right? There is this constant effort to preserve that something, uh, as if somehow 3D printers and self-driving cars and algorithms and facial recognition technology were all united by a coherent logic. And I think this is a very dangerous trend in how we think about technology, and it actually results in us missing a lot of the complicated political uses and misuses of those technologies. So I'll just give you uh, a couple of examples uh, so to, to situate you in, in, in what I'm actually saying here. Um, 
part of my job as a thinker is to show that there are actually very specific trends happening in society which have to do with politics, which have to do with economics, which have to do with uh, broader structural transformations in how our societies work. And if you look at some of them from the perspective where I stand, they have to do with the fact that our budgets for supporting public institutions are shrinking. We are introducing more and more measures to quantify the performance of such institutions. We are encouraging citizens to take matters into their own hands and start solving problems on their own. We are trying to gather more and more statistical information about how various programs perform. And we are trying to shift to a model where we're actually trying to preempt problems before they happen rather than let them happen and then deal with the consequences. Those are all sort of broader political economic transformations that I think are happening in society. And if you start with that picture, and if you start then analyzing specific developments in a field like health, or in a field like crime, what you would see there is that, well, in a field like health, uh, you would see that Thanks in part to manipulation by big pharmaceutical companies, uh, we are encouraged to actually search for more and more symptoms, and we are encouraged to take more and more preemptive steps, and we are encouraged to buy more and more drugs in order to stay healthy, right? So at this point, if you're not feeling, if uh, that something is, you know, hurting you, that, you know, that's a problem in itself that you probably need to go and do a checkup, right? That's not how we thought about disease 50 years ago. That's a structural change in how a notion of disease has evolved over the 50 years, partly influenced, I would argue, by big pharmaceutical companies. So once you start, once you accept that premise, you can clearly see that an introduction of an app on your smartphone, which would allow you to monitor your health on a daily basis or on an hourly basis, uh, will result in you uh, probably... uh, monitoring yourself even more, buying more and more drugs, and preempting more and more uh, diseases, right? So to analyze something like a self-tracker or self-tracking technology, which a lot of people in Silicon Valley and outside are now promoting, what you need to understand is not something inherent to sensors or mobile phones or apps. You need to understand the context in which these technologies are being put and, you know, to let us monitor our health and what are then the monetary implications stemming from this for pharmaceutical companies, investors, and, and anyone else, right? And the argument I would make is that the reason why a lot of people in the pharmaceutical industry are so excited about smartphones uh, has to do with the fact that they see it as a way to expand the market and expand how much drugs they're selling. It has nothing to do with s- smartphones being bad or good or apps being bad or good. It has everything to do with the existing context and the way in which uh, this industry has uh, a lot of power in defining how we think about health. You can also apply the same logic then to crime and think about how we now have come to address an issue like crime prevention. There is a lot of excitement in America, but also in Europe, about an idea like predictive policing, for example. And predictive policing is basically uh, a strategy where you rely on uh, historic data about past crimes, and you feed it into software uh, and algorithms, which can then generate predictions about future crimes that are likely to happen next, so that you as a police Uh, manager can then dispatch your policeman to a particular area of the city where crimes are likely to happen based on the predictions you get from the uh, 
from the computer. Right? Here again, it would be, I think, erroneous for us to be talking about the intrusion of technology into police work. We have to understand how it fits within a broader shift towards, for example, rational crime um, uh, prevention in policing, but it also has to deal with how the logic of preemption where we are trying, again, to preempt problems before they happen uh, is likely to affect our democracy, right? And it might be that many people would be happy to eliminate crime and prevent crimes before they happen, and it's arguable that now that everyone carries smartphones, we generate a lot of data, and we do have the capacity to record more and more information about what's happening and to analyze it on the spot, and to perhaps even have smart environments that can analyze who you are and how likely you are to commit a crime, and then prevent you, for example, from entering a certain room or entering a certain part of the city. I mean, all of that is already possible in part because environments, including built environments, have sensors built in them, and they can interconnect with your cell phones, they can interconnect with CCTV cameras, which can recognize your face, and there are new ways to control who gets in, who gets out. All of that is already happening, right? But again, we have to attack the system not because sensors are being used and not because algorithms are being used. We have to attack it because what it might mean for democracy, what it might mean for how we will be revising our norms. Right? It might be that if you start banning certain crimes, and not banning, but preventing them, right? this is the crucial distinction here, that once you make crime impossible or less likely, certain crimes do not happen, right? and as they do not happen, we no longer have the debate about them. Right? And as we no longer have a debate around them, they are not brought to courts, media don't write about them, so we are actually losing a very important channel for revising our norms. Right? It used to be that a lot of things that we would now find completely acceptable were actually illegal 50 or 70 or 100 years ago. Right? It might be that if we would always be engaging in such preemptive attempts, we would actually never get a chance to have a proper robust debate about all sorts of things, whether it's slavery or whether it's you know many many other activities that used to be that used to be uh, you know no slavery but discrimination, for example, uh, of you know black people in America. Right? It might be that uh, if Rosa Parks was riding a smart bus today she would actually never get on it because a uh, facial recognition camera would be able to see that she presents a threat, right? And as I'm not saying that, of course, she wouldn't find another outlet. And, of course, you can argue that there would always be a way in which dissidents will find outlets for dissent. But for me, what's interesting is how it affects the structural conditions, right, for the emergence of dissent, for the emergence of dangerous ideas and for how those ideas actually propagate through society. And it might be that as we rely on smart technologies, as we rely on sensors, we would actually be losing a very important channel for introducing some of those dissenting ideas to, to how we think. But here again, the reason that we need to be suspicious has to do with the broader change in how our society has come to think about risk, how it has come to think about preemption. Right? And my fear is that um, you actually see the same transformations across the board. You see it, for example, with uh, terrorism and now big data. I mean, if you follow the debate in America, right, the expectation there is that 
now we would actually be able to preempt acts of terror in advance. So we would be able to just scrutinize social networking activity of everyone. We would be able to scrutinize whoever you call. Right? And now we're actually looking at everyone in America. Right? We, we no longer focus on people who look too suspicious. We just suck in the phone records of everybody and we just sort people based on how risky it is, how risky are the people that they're in contact with, and we can actually rank people based on how risky they seem and engage again in acts of preempting terror. And of course, for many people, that would be a good thing because you would be avoiding a lot of unnecessary tragedy and blood and the spilling and, and, and whatnot. But you have to understand right, that with this ability to preempt things, we again are losing something and it might be that we no longer actually talk about why terror happens. And if you even look at America, right, I would argue that there is actually less and less debate about how uh, American foreign policy, for example, might actually be responsible for some of the acts of terror. We're no longer talking about how the use of drones in Yemen might actually be radicalizing Yemeni kids to engage in acts of terror. What we're talking about is how we can actually identify those kids before they blow up buildings in America, right? And I think that there is something uh, very dangerous happening here. And what's happening here is that, again, we are no longer interested in thinking about structural uh, causes of the problems. We are no longer actually interested in investigating why crime or terror might be happening. We are interested in uh, dealing with the symptoms and preempting them if we can, and the proliferation, again, of sensors, algorithms, and all sorts of new ways to track, analyze, um, and process data on the spot will allow us to engage in it more profoundly. But I think that, again, there is a huge cost to, uh, to democracy here. Um, the broader problem, I think, that we are facing is that we don't view Silicon Valley with the level of suspicion uh, that it deserves. Um, and, you know, if Ronald Reagan was the first uh, Teflon president, then I think Silicon Valley is for sure the first Teflon industry. Um, no matter how much dirt you throw at it, I mean, nothing seems to stick. Uh, and I think the reason is that we do think that they are actually different because of the fact that they are dealing with a commodity that is knowledge or information or data. And we think that it's a fundamentally different commodity than, for example, other industries are dealing with. Uh, if you have noticed, whenever we talk about uh, big pharma or big oil or big energy, we actually are fully cognizant of the fact that the top companies in those industries might actually have interests that are very different from those of the public. Uh, we don't use the term big data in that way, right? We don't use the term big data the way we use big pharma or big oil or big energy, in part because we don't think that Google or Facebook or Twitter or Apple might share an agenda, and we don't think that that agenda would actually be to exploit us or to that might actually be diverge from, from the public good. And I think we need to start being more critical. Um, I think we have to stop playing on the same playing field as these companies want us to play on. And the playing field that they want us to stay on is to keep the debate about the internet and the digital and technology solely within its own limits. So they do want to talk about the digital technology and the internet, and they don't want to talk about politics and economics. Right? That's why 
every time you go and you try to argue and accuse Silicon Valley of having an economic agenda or political agenda, they would just laugh at you and tell you that, well, you are just a Luddite and you just don't like technology and you don't like technology and that means that whatever criticism you make of their uh, effect on how we think about policymaking or how we think about terrorism or how we think about education, all of them can be dismissed because what you're ultimately critical of is technology and not the political and social consequences that uh, the intrusion of Silicon Valley into those uh, industries will cause. And uh, if you have noticed, uh, the fact that everything now revolves around information in one way or another means that technology companies in Silicon Valley become crucial and essential to virtually every single field of life. You can see them already in education, you can see them in art, you can see them making films. I mean, just uh, this weekend there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about Amazon uh, seeking to use all of the data that it has gathered from its users, uh, including in its Amazon Prime um, program to start making films and they are already making films, right? And you can see that they will be everywhere. Google is making cars, uh, Google is making Google Glasses, Google is present in one way or another in education, in books. Uh, all of this, again, think about predictive policing. It might not be uh, Google or Amazon, but there are a bunch of startups in Silicon Valley who are essentially building software that will then power uh, those predictive policing systems. You will see that technology industry, in one way or another, will be crucial to the future of virtually every single industry, right? And they will be competing in virtually every single industry, and they will be doing things very differently. So if you think about Amazon's uh, foray into filmmaking, um, Amazon very clearly states that, well, we don't actually care about tastemaking, we don't actually care about anything else but data. We want to see what our users want, and we want to give them exactly the film that they want. Right? And you might say that this is a perfectly reasonable approach, but you know, it might be that uh, something in our culture will actually be lost as we move and completely transition to this new um, formats. Right? And Amazon, of course, will tell you that it's all about data, it's all about knowledge, it's all about knowing our customers, but if you stop playing on their own terms, and if you refuse this language of knowledge, data, the internet, and technology, we'll actually see that all they're saying is that we'll just produce films, or books for that matter, that are entirely market-driven. Right? That all we care about is to get as much feedback as we can from the market, produce products that are assured of getting some success because people have already indicated that they're interested and then just giving people uh, what has the highest degree of success or highest chance of success, right? And you might argue that this is how publishing always worked and this is how filmmaking always worked. I don't buy that argument, in part because I think this is a very simplistic take and perspective on how we used to do things in uh, the pre-Amazon and pre-Google world where it might be that the publishing house would take a risk on an author and uh, they'll publish 10 books out of which only one might actually pay for the other nine, but we will have 10 ideas instead of one. I'm not sure that that will be the future that we'll have once Amazon decides to publish books that have 
and they have the knowledge and they have the data, right? So they are in a much better position than the former publishing houses to make those choices. So something is changing structurally, right? As these companies move into these new areas, it's no longer just about shopping, and Google is no longer just about giving you the search results that you want. They are intruding into, as I've said, almost every single industry out there, and they bring their own logic, and they don't actually care about whatever dynamics drove those industries in the past. And I think this is where we do need to start talking about the impact that they will have. And uh, we do have to be critical of what it is that they might be doing. But we don't have to be critical about the fact that they are using technology. We have to be critical about the fact that they are companies with a very ruthless, profit-focused agenda and that they do not share the culture of many of those industries and that they might actually be introducing the levels of control in many of these industries or fields that didn't exist there before. Just think about the massive open online courses, or MOOCs, again, which is a very big topic in America and Europe and probably in Australia as well. Um, if you follow this debate closely, you'll see that uh, a lot of these private companies, which now partner with universities to produce these online courses, essentially they need to find a way to uh, issue diplomas, right? Because no one goes to school and people do it virtually. It's very hard to actually verify that the student who registers is the student who takes the exam. So what do they do? They actually, at least one of them, one of the largest companies, Coursera, um, now is actually employing uh, biometric identification. So they uh, try to do facial recognition and they also study your typing speed to identify and to, that you are who you are and they monitor it throughout your course and at the end uh, they compare your face uh, with uh, the picture that was taken at the very beginning and that record is then stored somewhere in your profile and then you know if you get a job based on that uh, course then that travels that biometric data I assume travels with you to your employer or, or, or whatever it's going to be a very different type of education from the one we had before where universities had open door policies right where you actually didn't have to uh, go through a facial recognition check and you didn't have to submit to analysis with your typing speed uh, to come and listen to a lecture, right? So there are structural changes in uh, fields that um, we barely notice, right? And it's going to be the same with uh, technologies like self-driving cars and whatnot. They will have uh, surveillance powers and they will have the ability to track everywhere you go and they will have the ability to then store that data somewhere on the Google server and then, of course, we will discover that FBI and National Security Agency now can monitor wherever you go without actually installing any extra trackers on your car because your car already has trackers because it's a self-driving car, right? And that's the kind of structural change in how we live that is very easy to miss as we just focus on the great emancipatory and enabling and empowering potential of many of these technologies, right? And again, I would argue that if those technologies were not run by huge companies that are interested in organizing and sucking in as much data as they can, they wouldn't have the same effect. So you can actually have a self-driving car that wouldn't necessarily store all your data forever. The reason why that happens is because Google has a very particular business model that uh, 
corresponds to you know their ability and their need to sell ads and uh, there are different ways for us as a society to actually take advantage of self-driving cars to take advantage of smart glasses to take advantage of uh, many of these technologies it's the same by the way with something like predictive policing it is possible to build algorithms that we would be able to use to predict where crimes might be happening uh, but we would still have the ability to actually examine those algorithms. I mean, the way it works now is that those algorithms are proprietary, and we cannot actually examine them for any bias. So you don't know if they're incorporating any biases that might be of racial nature or socioeconomic nature or of any other nature, because they are built by private companies, and those companies have just said that this is a secret. We cannot let you come and look at our algorithms. Right? My point here is that we can actually use many of the same technologies but do things differently if we do think about it as sort of a public investment in infrastructure. Right? And this is, I think, an approach that we are beginning to lose as we buy into Silicon Valley's talking points that essentially they are in the business of producing magic and that no other arrangement, which might be some public-private partnership or might just be a public institution, would ever come close to doing what it is they are doing. And I just think that this is fundamentally untrue. And there might be ways in which, and I think partly thanks to NSA uh, affair and partly thanks to Snowden, we would see a lot of European governments now moving in to think about alternative ways to build uh, infrastructure for communication, particularly email. Uh, and I think that would actually not be a bad development. Uh, unlike what you see in the press, all the fears about balkanization of the internet and whatnot, I think we might actually see some robust experiments with publicly provided and publicly supervised infrastructure that is not tied to a business model um, like Google's or like Facebook's. Because, I mean, think about, uh, think about our email. I mean, to me, email is the, the perfect example here. I mean, imagine if I came to you and I said that I have a unique way to run the postal system. Right? And forget about stamps. Who needs stamps? Right? What we can do is to embrace a new model where we wouldn't have to pay for a postage at all. But what we'll do is that the post office will just open every letter, we'll scan it, we'll insert a relevant ad, then we'll seal it and pass it on to whoever you wanted to send it to. Right? It will be free right? for you. We don't have to pay for it. And that essentially would sound very crazy. Right? But that's exactly the model that we have embraced because Google has convinced us that there is no other way to run email. Right? And I just think that this is ridiculous. I mean, this is not the only way to run email, and there are other ways, and we just have to start thinking harder and harder as we discover that their business models are creating a situation where the military-industrial complex, which is now out of control, is actually leveraging that infrastructure really well. Right? But it doesn't mean that... No other country can think of a better arrangement just because the NSA in America is just so voracious when it comes to data, right? And I think that as we worry about balkanization of the Internet, what we're essentially doing is that we're just letting this uh, essentially alliance between Silicon Valley on the one hand and the NSA on the other to continue as they do while essentially claiming that what they're doing is saving the Internet from balkanization, Right? And I just, I just refuse to buy that argument. I think it's, it's not an argument that we should be accepting and critically. 
but the broader point I would want to make is that we have, again, to return this debate to the language of politics and language of economics and the language of political economy. And we have to stop just buying into new apps and new solutions to big public problems just because they sound uh, uh, sexy or just because they involve technology. Right? We have to scrutinize the underlying political logics that some of them employ, and many of those logics I find particularly actually quite ugly. So I'll give you one example which I discuss uh, at length in, 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 in my new book, which to me illustrates the great potential of many of the smart technologies that we have now, but also the great danger uh, of relying on them um, unproblematically and without asking questions. So a group of designers from Germany and the UK have built what they call a smart trash can. Right? And it's uh, a smart trash can which looks like a regular trash can, trash bin, uh, but with a, one difference. So it has a smartphone uh, built into its upper lid. Right? So every time you open and close the trash bin in your kitchen, it snaps a photo uh, of what you have just thrown away. Right? And what happens with that photo is that that photo is then being uploaded uh, to a site run by Amazon called the Mechanical Turk, where volunteers are paid to analyze and do different tasks. In this case, they analyze your picture to see if you are recycling things correctly. Right? And if you are recycling things correctly, you are then assigned a couple of points, and that picture, along with the points you have just earned, uh, goes to a Facebook profile, where essentially you're competing against other households who have the same trash can installed in their kitchen, <laughs> right? So whoever wins most points at the end of the week then gets a prize, right? And you can then convert your points into whatever fancy prize that, you know, you, 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 you want, right? You might think that this is silly. You might think that this is a nice art project aimed at revealing just how everything now has a sensor and, you know, can be used for surveillance. But it's actually a serious initiative built by people who are very concerned about environment and who are very concerned about saving the planet, right? And it illustrates uh, the possibility of modifying human behavior, which you can now achieve, thanks in part to the fact that you can now build sensors into everything, and you can also introduce what people in Silicon Valley would call the social layer, right? That's the fact that you can have all of your friends, essentially, fit into your trash bin and see what's happening there, uh, <laughs> thanks to the fact that your trash bin is connected to the Internet, right? Because of those two trends, the fact that you can have a sensor built into any artifact, and because you can now have the social layer into almost anything, new types of social motivation and social behavior become possible. Right? And what's interesting here is that, essentially, if you think about the motivation for recycling, right, here you're entering a very interesting uh, choice, because essentially, if you're being asked to recycle because you can collect points, right, you are being appealed to in a very different register than you normally appear to when you are being asked to recycle. Now you're being appealed to, essentially, as a consumer who is interested in collecting points, and then converting those points into something else. And you're not being appealed to as a citizen who is concerned about saving the planet or doing your share or doing your duty or what have you. Right? It's a very different uh, motivation. It's a very different logic. And it might be that uh, 
that logic will be more effective, right? The, 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 the points logic, the logic that we see in, you know, frequent flyer programs, essentially the same, um, it's the same uh, type of motivation, right? So uh, the temptation here, I think, for a lot of our technocrats and for a lot of our policymakers is to actually leverage those two trends, to leverage the fact that you can now have sensors into everything and to leverage the fact that you can now get people to do things for reasons that don't necessarily have to do with politics or morality or thinking about how they relate to others, right? And uh, I think the greatest fear is that those schemes would actually work, right? And that we would end up with people who are prepared to do things that matter and to do the right thing without necessarily grasping why it is the right thing, right? And uh, my politics is such that I think it actually matters so that people don't only do the right thing, but they do the right thing for the right reasons, right? And it might be that the fact that now you can have these new types of social incentives built into virtually everything, you will be bypassing that political and moral register altogether and just operating at the level of consumerism and essentially getting people to do things because it appeals to their self-interest. And it might be that it will be more effective. I'm just saying that if you follow the discourse about this issue in Silicon Valley, there is a buzzword for this. And people in Silicon Valley would call the strategy I have just described, they would call it gamification. Right? And it's this idea that you can essentially turn everything into some kind of a game precisely because there is a sensor in internet connectivity ubiquitously present everywhere and you can actually leverage it. And it's the same with sensors. I mean, if you follow closely the debate about smart technologies, you'll see that there are all sorts of smart objects out there which tend to uh, aspire at least to, to change our behavior. You have smart forks which have sensors which basically monitor how fast you are eating, and if you're eating too fast, they will start vibrating to tell you that you need to slow down. Right? You have smart shoes, which, again, can alert you when they're about to get worn down. I mean, you have uh, smart umbrellas, which can uh, connect to the Internet and monitor the weather, and they will flash a blue light uh, to tell you that you have to take the umbrella when you go outside. Right? Uh, all of this is happening, and some of them sound innocent, but some of them, I think, produce uh, very interesting changes uh, in our behavior, and they do appeal to a lot of policymakers precisely because they think that by leveraging the fact that we are all carrying essentially self-monitoring devices and gadgets in our pockets, we might get citizens to do things that they would not do otherwise. Right? And for me, I think this is where a lot of companies in Silicon Valley would eventually want to go. I mean, I have a term for this, I call this solutionism, right? And for me, it's this tendency for us to accept a lot of these easy and tempting solutions uncritically without thinking about how they actually redefine the problem that we are trying to tackle. Uh, and uh, you can see it very uh, clearly at work in, in Google, for example. So Google relies on the same logic. Google has... Uh, several apps, so one of their apps is called Google Now. And Google Now, if you listen to Google, does a lot of very good things. It can have it on your phone, and it basically monitors everything that you do, and it tries to do things uh, for you without you even asking for it, right? So it might know that you have an email uh, with a plain reservation in your inbox, so it will automatically check you into your flight, 
It will check the traffic conditions on the way to the airport and tell you that you need to be leaving home 20 minutes earlier because the traffic is really bad. And it will check the weather conditions at the destination of where you're flying and tell you that you need to take an umbrella because it might be raining. I mean, as you, as you see in this future, we will never get wet, which is at least uh, one good thing. But, yeah, yeah, but it also does something, it also does something in, a, in addition. And what it does in addition is that it also monitors how much you walk every month, right? Because it has a sensor built into it, right? So it can monitor how much you walk, and at the end of each month, it produces a card which tells you that, well, this month you've walked 20% less or 20% more. And this is essentially Silicon Valley, a private technology company, uh, trying to make an intervention into your life, right? Telling you that, well, perhaps uh, you should be doing more of something. In this case, it's exercising and walking. And I think that this logic, this solving problems by private means, by relying on these companies, will actually be of great interest to a lot of policymakers. But my fear is that it's one way of solving problems, right? We are not regulating the food industry, we are not building infrastructure, we are not actually asking questions why people don't exercise or why people are obese. We're not asking those questions anymore. All we're doing is to give you more information so that you yourself can modify the behavior and not modify the system itself. And I think that this is the crucial point that many people don't understand about such schemes. And you will not be able to understand it unless you start asking political and economic questions. Right? Uh, and uh, I think we're running out of time so that I, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll still leave some for questions. But I'll finish with just sort of one big message. I mean, forget the debate about the internet, right? It's not about whether the internet is good or bad. It's not about whether the algorithms are good or bad. Much of this debate revolves around the intrusion of essentially private companies uh, with their own agendas into activities that previously were carried on by public institutions. Uh, and they were addressed as political matters and not just as technological matters where innovation is the only criteria and we no longer talk about politics and economics. We need to recover that language, and unless we do recover it, I think we'll all be governed out of Silicon Valley. Thank you so much. <laughs>
respect this is true, and a lot of people do feel uneasy about this example, but I also think that this is the kind of thing that appeals to a lot of technocrats and a lot of policymakers. I can easily imagine, for example, the European Commission subsidizing the manufacturers of uh, such trash cans because it will be a great way to solve uh, you know, the, the, many problems connected to recycling. And this is a point where you know, you're no longer in the market-driven sort of uh, process, right? When policymakers get excited about this stuff, they will find a way to take advantage of this new infrastructure. So, um, I mean, I agree with you that some people might find it uh, uh, suspicious, but I also wouldn't just trust the market to sort out things well. I mean, there will be all sorts of distortions, which precisely have to do with the fact that our politicians have, in one way or another, run out of options, right? And for them, things that look sexy, and technology does look very sexy, appeal in their own right. But the fact that it's a new scheme, and you can use Facebook and Amazon and sensors and smartphones and apps to solve a problem like recycling, it makes it much more appealing to them than it might make it to us as citizens. And that's what bothers me. Microphone one, please. Uh, hello, my name is Rafi Gold. Um, you spoke earlier in your speech about the role of the internet and activism. Mm -hmm. um, last year we had a video released, Coney 2012. Mm -hmm. uh, they asked, you know, for a month later if people could all gather throughout their uh, cities and towns and do something good. Almost no one showed up. It was a essentially it was a failure. Mm -hmm. um, do you believe that we're seeing the end of uh, you know, this translation from uh, digital activism to real physical activism? Yeah, you see, I, I just have a very hard time uh, operating with this concept like digital activism and, and real activism. I mean, for me, uh, it's just, there is just one activism, right? And as, some of it is effective and some of it is ineffective. And I think a lot of people who think that there is an entity called digital activism and that that's somehow different from real activism just because it's taking over, it's happening through Facebook and not through leaflets or not through television or through radio, I think they're deluding themselves, right? And they have to understand that, you know, essentially, uh, you're dealing with people who have agendas, who have attention spans, and who have different commitments. And the fact that they join something on Facebook, you know, is probably as meaningful as them signing a petition on paper, right? It doesn't, since it doesn't take much, probably you should not expect them to commit to it seriously, right? So, but for me, I think the danger here is that we tend to uh, endow things that happen on Facebook or things that happen on Twitter with some you know, exceptionalism, which I think we need to be very, very suspicious of. And that, you know, the reason why that campaign has failed is because they never managed to build uh, any strong grassroots support. Right? The fact that people watch a video on YouTube doesn't necessarily translate into anything, right? It's like people watching an ad on television. And I think we forget that and we think that, well, since this video was seen by 8 million people on YouTube, it means that at least half of them will do something afterwards. And I just think that's a very bizarre and silly argument, which only makes sense if you think that there is a separate world out there and it's called cyberspace and things they work differently. So, you know, it's populated by better humans with no things to do. And okay. I just... <laughs> uh, microphone two. Hi, my name is David. Um, you talked about being able to examine algorithms for bias and predictive policing. Mm -hmm. um, do you think open source is important? Um, well, uh, 
open source is important, not necessarily in this context. Uh, I think what you want in this context is probably some kind of an auditing solution where you might actually bring in an external auditor the way you do with financial statements who would be able to analyze the code and verify that it's not doesn't contain any obvious biases without necessarily forcing the company to release the code. And I would argue that I think actually in, in Hong Kong and possibly actually in Australia it's happening with automated trading, right? Where there is an effort to start examining the systems and the algorithms that power how our stock exchanges work, right? And I think that's a very healthy attitude. We should do it with Google search as well and not just with predictive policing. Because so far the argument from Google has been that we cannot show you our algorithms because if we show you our algorithms, then people will start tricking them. Fine, don't show us the algorithms. Show them to someone else who might have the credibility to say whether they are biased or not biased. And uh, I haven't heard a credible response from Google uh, to that point because I don't think that they have a credible response. Okay. Microphone one. Hi, I won't give you my name. I'm sure you can find out by facial recognition what it is. Um, I had a question which was that you talked about maybe a public-private partnership or some alternative where instead of having all the data concentrated in Silicon Valley, perhaps governments might mm -hmm. consider ways of taking over new ways of doing communication. But what you haven't mentioned very much or explicitly is privacy. Mm -hmm. So my question is, is that the idea of government having that data so much more wonderful or utopian or ideal or better? Yeah. Is it some lesser of two evils sure. when... I don't really want to give up my data in the first place to anybody, particularly. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Uh, I mean, look, then don't do email, right? I mean, there is a very easy answer to that, right? The problem is that I don't think that we, again, we buy into the talking points from Silicon Valley. They always tell us that we have a choice, right? You don't have to use a cell phone. You don't have to use Facebook. I mean, right now, if you're not on Facebook and if you're not using a cell phone, and if a national security agency in America knows about it, they probably suspect you of hiding, you know, <laughs> Of, of hiding Ben Laden's body in your basement. I mean, that's the... Uh, so, I mean, I, uh, I, I was joking when I said that you shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't be an email, but I think we have to start being more sophisticated about public institutions and about governments. I mean, you can have, you look at the country like Germany, you can have a country with very strong privacy protection and a very strong data protection office and, you know, a robust data intelligence service, and those would actually coexist and not impinge on each other. And I think because of America and because of NSA, we tend to collapse all government into one evil institution and think that they are all driven by the same agenda. And if they are driven by the same agenda, it's because we have led them to, right? We have not taken good care to differentiate between our public institutions. And I think, again, this is where you need laws and you need stronger thinking and not just thinking in terms of public versus private. You can have different kinds of public as well. Okay. Microphone two. Thanks, first of all, for the very, very enlightening um, speech. So since technology is so ubiquitous and the motives of entities are not always transparent, what do you think is the antidote to this world of potential technological panopticons? This is definitely a cautionary tale, so what would, what would be your advice for you, that you would offer to modern-day technology consumers and designers? 
Well, I mean, I think the key point that I would offer is to stop using the term consumer, which you have just used. And we have to actually recast many of the debates we have right now into political terms where we actually start thinking about something like information ethics. We have to figure out how we would be able to use the data infrastructure that's out there to share data, but we also have to figure out what are some of the political consequences of our decision to share data or to take you know, a smart gadget that will come for free, but will be subsidized by the data produced in, our, in the context of using it. Let me give you an example. I mean, right now, I can assure you that there are startups in Silicon Valley that are building smart toothbrushes, right? And those toothbrushes, as you probably have guessed, would monitor how often you brush your teeth and would uh, transmit that data to your insurance company or to your dentist, right? But you can easily see how such an artifact can actually be free. I mean, you'll get it for free, and instead, what will be subsidizing the cost of the smart toothbrush would be the data that will then be transmitted to, you know, the manufacturer of the toothpaste or whatever, right? That's exactly the same model that powers our email. And a lot of people will find it very exciting and very appealing. You can think of, you know, any artifact in your household can run on the same model because some data is generated. I mean, every time you open your fridge door in the kitchen to reach for the milk, there is someone interested in knowing how long the door remains open, right? Because they can design a better milk package, right? If you can capture that data and then put it on the market and sell it, right? You can essentially get your fridge for free, right? In the future. And this is where we're heading. And this is why I think if you start only putting this stuff in terms of uh, consumerism, we will end up in a situation where people just accept it the way they accept Gmail. And I think we have to articulate what are some of the political, social, and ethical costs to some of this. What are some of the potential side effects of the, you know, existing technologies that are out there? Well, we have to we have to start articulating to people how our use, uh, exchange, uh, and sharing of data has political consequences, and how the fact that I can monitor my health to get better package for my insurance company might affect someone else who will not be monitoring themselves, but will eventually be forced to monitor themselves because if they don't, they'll be treated with suspicion. Right? Mm-hmm. That's something that you can start analyzing in a different political language, and we don't do it right now. Well, look, we need to bring this to a close, but I think just to capture a few, I think really uh, compelling arguments on a couple of fronts. One to do with the fact that what does technology do mm-hmm. about the conversations that we should have but won't have if everything is already solved in advance? Uh, And what's the price we're willing to pay for not having those conversations? Uh, Secondly, who should have ownership and control? uh, And should it be driven primarily by a commercial impulse or by the needs of governments rather than citizens? And I think a third and related point, which is uh, absolutely critical, is how do we, those of us in this room, see ourselves in relation to technology? Are we content always to be portrayed to ourselves as consumers, mm-hmm. where the, the dangling carrot is the free use of some bright new thing, or are we ultimately going to return to a world in which we think about this as citizens, with that social, political and economic, mm-hmm. uh, ethical framework within which to make that discussion? Th- those are pretty profound questions, I think, which takes technology away from being about gadgets and privacy alone, which I know is a very big concern for many people. 
to a much more profound set of issues we have to think about as a society. So for introducing those thoughts to us, stimulating that thinking, would you please join with me in thanking Evgeny Molina. Thank you.